Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see everybody here. It's a <clears throat> beautiful morning, is it not? This is just about as nice as it gets, isn't it? I feel like I'm cutting in on the us usher's time here. I'm not sure if I should be speaking it or not, but I see they're just about done, so uh, we'll do it. It's, it's a real pleasure to be with, to be with you folks. Uh, I didn't really have the opportunity to meet your lead pastor, Matt Schantz, which is interesting because I know him, I know his father, Doug, Dr. Doug Schantz, and when I arrived at Trinity Western back in 1990 to begin my teaching post there, Dr. Doug Schantz was already teaching there. He was a friend of mine, and in fact, the Course in Christian Apologetics, which I taught, he had been teaching up until I got there, so we, we switched that course over during that time, but, but uh, Doug, Dr. Schantz is, is really doing well. Now, how is this? Is this coming through okay, or is it kind of bouncing back a little bit? It's bouncing, echoing a little bit more, so I'm not, I know we've been working on that all morning. Back, back a little bit more. Does this help? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you keep on working at it up there. Wow, okay, that's even hurting my ears right there. Um, I know my voice sometimes hurts other people's ears. I'm not sure if it hurts uh, your ears as, as much as it does mine at this point. Listen, um, I really commend your church for being involved in an apologetics series like this, facing tough questions. Not everybody's willing to face the tough questions because we're not always sure where they're going to go, are we? Uh, and it's not safe territory, but I commend your church leadership for being able to do that. <clears throat> and I found over the years it's been a really exciting thing in my own journey to be able to face tough questions one by one and, and address them in some way, one way or the other. How is it? Is it still bouncing now? Still bouncing now. Is there anything? Do you want me to do something different up here? How about I change it? Change just a little bit? How does that help? Is that any better? Okay. As we can make it. What's that? A little bit, okay, just a tiny bit. What if I move it even further? Is that any better there? Okay, if we can make it, uh, okay, because we have to, you have to endure this for uh, the time I'm up here, so let's make sure it works. Um, I, I was going to say that I, I think that um, it is, I, 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 when I come, up to, come to a place like this now, I feel like the first thing I should be doing is commending you and your church for, for being a risk-taking church, because I think having guest speakers can be a risky business. I mean, you don't really know what you got till the person's up there speaking, do you? Uh, I've been on the other side of this at times, bringing in guest speakers for things, and, and I know that the risks that can be involved. I, I did hear one story once of a speaker who was invited in and given exactly 30 minutes to speak. I've been given a little bit more than that this morning, but uh, this speaker was given exactly 30 minutes. Well, as, after 30 minutes came and went, he was still going strong. He showed no signs of slowing down whatsoever. Uh, 45 minutes came and went, and he was still going. An hour came along, he was still speaking, and the MC who was sitting back here was wondering, what do I do with this speaker? He's going, he's, he's completely out of control. He, so he took a little piece of paper, and he wrote the words, please stop, on the piece of paper. And he walked up discreetly and put it on the podium in front of the speaker, thinking that might help. The speaker looked at the words, please stop, threw them down on the floor, kept on going uh, for another 15 minutes, showed no signs of slowing down. So finally he felt, well, I'm out of options. From back here, the MC simply took his gavel, wound up and threw it at the speaker from behind. But he missed. It came flipping through the air and hit a little old lady right in the front row. Uh, and she was knocked unconscious a little bit for a moment. She fell down. She got up somewhat dazed. People rushed to help her. And she looked up and said, hit me again. I can still hear him. <laughs> now, see... That's, that's the risk you take. You take that risk when you bring in a guest speaker. And so I uh, really pretty, I commend you folks, and I feel quite lucky to be invited in as a guest speaker this morning. Uh, and uh, I will keep the time in mind pretty, pretty carefully. I told that joke one time and then went overtime myself and uh, heard about it for the rest of the day uh, later on. So I'll, I'll do my best here today. It has uh, been my privilege to be a professor at, at the university, Trinity Western University, since 1990. 
And in 2001, we started something on the theological side called ACTS, ACTS Seminaries, which stands for the Association of Canadian Theological Schools, and that's the Graduate School of Theology for the University. Uh, We started something called an Institute for Christian Apologetics. It's kind of a funny, odd-sounding term, isn't it, Christian apologetics? Maybe you know what this word means, but but what does it sound like we're doing when we're involved in Christian apologetics? It's not like we're learning how to say, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, I won't let that happen again, or something like that. Uh, but the word apologetics comes from a Greek word, apologia, which goes back a long, long ways, back to the time of Jesus. It's, in fact, it's in the New Testament where, where, where Peter calls upon his readers to always be ready to give an account, a reason. That word is apologia, a reason for the, for the hope that we have. It's a word back then that simply meant defense. In fact, it goes back to, to in fact, one of Plato's dialogues way back before the time of Jesus is called the apology. The word means, it means a defense. And when a lawyer walked into court to give a defense of his client, he was using the word apology. He was giving an apology for his client. Uh, and, 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 the, and you see the word very commonly back then. Well, not long after the Church of Jesus Christ came into formation, people rose up and began to attack the church for different things, different practices and different uh, beliefs and doctrines that Christians, uh, Christians held. And there were some unusual kinds of attacks, at least to our ears today. But very soon... Various ones from the Christian community rose up and they began to respond to these and to give a defense of Christian faith and Christian practice. And they were called Christian apologists, the early Christian apologists. And we stand in that same tradition today doing the very same thing, simply looking at our culture and finding out what is it that stands in the way of people embracing Jesus and embracing Christianity. What is it? And addressing those questions. And that's what we, we are doing when we're involved in a series like this. Now, uh, John has mentioned I've had the opportunity over the years to, to write a number of books, and it's been a great privilege for me to do so, to address issues in a bigger way. Uh, and we have some of them for sale at the back of the church. I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But let me just tell you what they are so you know a little bit of what's in them. This was the first one I ever got to write called Can We Be Good Without God? It arose from a debate I was involved in up at UBC when I first arrived at Trinity Western. Um, and the debate <clears throat> was dealing with two, different, two specific questions, and those were the questions of the book. And the first one was, is morality purely a subjective thing? Is it a private, subjective, relative thing? Or is there such a thing as real, objective, moral truth out there? Is there? And, and, the, book, and the first half of the book addresses that question with a number of different viewpoints, and you can see the different people representing viewpoints on the cover here, for, if you can see that. The second half of the book simply says, assuming there is objective moral truth, well, is God required for that? Is a, is a theistic foundation required for objective moral truth? In the debate, the interesting thing was that we had on this, um, the professor, the atheist professor and I both agreed right up front, yes, there is such a thing as objective moral value. He understood that. He knew that. He knew that it was the difference between the life of a Mother Teresa and an Adolf Hitler. It wasn't just that we prefer one or the other. One was genuinely better, morally better than the other, and he agreed, agreed with that. But, of course, he disagreed that God was required for it. And that's where the debate went. And that's where this book came. It's an interaction between five different viewpoints on that, on that one, on those two questions. This one here, the second one called Final Wishes, I, uh, there's a cautionary tale on death, dignity, and physician-assisted suicide. This arose from a phone call I got right out of the blue one day asking if I'd be willing to debate the member of parliament, Sven Robinson. Some of you will know who Sven Robinson was. And we actually, actually ended up having two different debates. And then I had six more with another lady from the Hemlock Society out of Denver, Colorado, but when we really worked on this issue. Uh, and that was a time when, when Sven Robinson was spending time with a woman from Victoria whose name is Sue Rodriguez. Some of you probably remember the news on that. 
and we're crusading hard for the legalization of assisted suicide. They're probably ecstatic today because it's just happened. The Supreme Court on February 6th of this year had just struck down the prohibition on assisted suicide. But at the time, I was teaching ethics, teaching on this area a little bit, and my own mother had multiple sclerosis. She had it for 34 years, eventually died from the disease. I looked around and I could see it was people just like this who once in a while ask for assistance in dying. And, that, and, and I looked at the media reports, I saw, and, and I realized there's so much more to this issue than the media is telling us. And after having those debates, I took a sabbatical from the university and wrote this, and th this book deals with that. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more. This is the one that is almost sold out back there, but I'll tell you a little bit more what, what to do with this. The third one, talking about good and bad without getting ugly. I'm not sure if you could come up with a title like this. I'm not that guy, kind of a guy to come up with these catchy titles. I sent in a much more bland title. Uh, and I learned there that at that point the difference between a publisher and a terrorist. You know what the difference is between those two? You can actually negotiate with a terrorist. Okay? <laughs> <coughs> That's a difference I encountered when dealing with them. They said, Paul, we see the title you sent, but you know we like this one better. What do you think? Yeah, thanks, Paul. We're going to go with this one. That's how the uh, negotiations went. And so it's called Talking About Good and Bad Without Getting Ugly. And, it is, and it's a book about how we engage others on moral questions, questions of faith as well. And the interesting thing about that is, is it not true we're often told to stay away from those kinds of questions, especially religion, politics, maybe ethical questions that are very sensitive, and, and stay away from those in polite company. Uh, but the, but the, the point is, these are some of the most important issues to do interact with on others. How do we interact in a way that really is, a, is uh, effective and inoffensive with people across the back fence or anywhere we get an opportunity to do so? It's, it's, I've always been concerned about that. And sometimes we're told things like this. Listen, you have no right to impose your moral values on others. Well, you realize how quickly that shuts down an entire viewpoint, sometimes shuts down an entire question. And that's an interesting question to raise. What does it mean to impose somebody's moral value on others? Is that always wrong? Can you run any society without somebody imposing some moral values in the, in the form of a law at least? But there seems to be a kernel of truth, but what does it mean? So we have one chapter entitled, Thou Shalt Not Impose. And there are other chapters like that as well that deal with that. This fourth uh, book is dealing with what I consider to be one of the main pressing apologetic challenges of our day. Uh, it's, coming, it's called Why People Don't Believe. And it's, and it's uh, responding to a group of people called the New Atheists. And you probably heard some of their names, Richard Dawkins, probably the world's most well-known atheist at the moment. Um, Sam Harris is another well-known atheist. Dr. Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, who died a couple of years ago now. They're called New Atheists. What's new? Well, atheists have always said religion, including Christianity, is flawed, it's false, it makes claims that aren't true. But these atheists are saying there's something more to it. Religion, including Christianity now, is actually dangerous. It's a force for evil in the world. Uh, and it, it causes people to get involved in suicide bombings and to blow up buildings. And Richard Dawkins gets huge applause from going around the world with this statement. The thing I love about science, he says, because he's a scientist, the science helps us fly people to the moon. What I don't like about religion is that religion helps us to fly planes into buildings. And he gets a huge applause for that. And statements like that around the world. And religion is turned into this thing that breeds violence and intolerance and, and, uh, and, and causes huge amounts of havoc in the world. And in the strongest statements, some people are, are saying the way to ensure the survival of the human race is to eradicate religion from the world. And, and these are best-selling books by best-selling authors from around the world who also give lectures everywhere they go. And this book here is a response to that. It says, it says why people don't believe, confronting seven challenges. They're all related to that one big challenge. Is religion dangerous? And what about Jesus? What if you followed the so-called religion of Jesus? If you really followed that, would you be led to violence 
to carry out your, your, your so-called religious aims. And that's, the, that's where the book goes, but it also gets into other more uh, a little philosophical issues in that book. Now let me just say, John mentioned, some of these are sold out at the back, and I'm sorry about that. We could have brought any amount of these along. Um, but we have a sheet of paper back there. If there's a book you want that's not there, simply sign it. If you wouldn't mind signing it, putting your name down and information, and, uh, uh, and, and, and leave the money for it there as well, we'll we're going to send a box of books back to the church. The fellow that's back there in the back is my son, and he's able to help you with that as well. So that's, that's the, the way we all have to deal with it, and I appreciate that. But this morning, we are turning our attention to an issue, to a question which has been around for a long time. This is not a new question but it continues to be a serious stumbling block both to Christians and non-Christians alike, I'm sure you'll agree, and maybe some of us even here at times. It's been articulated by philosophers, by ordinary common people, and it's one of those issues that it has double force. It has what I call logical force in the sense that if it succeeds as an argument, it becomes a very strong argument against the existence of God, against the, against the concept of a Christian God. But it also has emotional force, does it not? It grabs us as human beings as, and sometimes tears us up as we hear about horrendous and sad cases of pain and suffering and evil in the world, the question is, if God is so good, then why do bad things happen to good people? I came across this article in a newspaper some time back, but you could pick up almost any newspaper and come up with something like this if you want. But it's a story of a 10-year-old girl who endured an hour in an icy pond before being rescued after she and a friend plunged into the frigid water while trying to save a pet dog. The girl later, eventually, a day or so later, died in the hospital. The story is that she and a seven-year-old friend, younger friend, were out walking on a farm out in Ontario about two o'clock in the afternoon when Valerie, the young girl, threw a stick for her German shepherd to fetch. The stick landed on a pond which had a thin layer of ice over top. The dog chased it, crashing through the ice. Valerie ventured out to help rescue the dog, but fell through. Then the seven-year-old girl tried to help out. She also fell in. Then the dog got out. The younger girl managed to get out. Valerie's mother was called. She rushed, but she couldn't get to her to help. She had to run home again, call 911. They came and pulled the daughter out, and the next day she died in the hospital. When you read that, you say, yeah, why do bad things happen to good people? And there's many more, many stories you could, you, we could tell like that. Uh, almost any time in the news, a major event of that kind of thing happens. This question is raised in editorials and in the newspapers as well. I want us this morning to see this, for this, this whole issue for what it is most, most basically, and that is as an argument for atheism. Uh, and our task this morning, because that's what it is, our task this morning is to find out whether this argument for atheism succeeds. You see, I'm not sure how much we've thought about this, but atheism is actually a very hard claim to prove or even to support very strongly. Uh, notice what the claim is. There is no God, but no God where? Anywhere, in or out of the universe. This is the atheist claim. Now, if you're attempting to give arguments and evidence for theism, you simply put the evidence down, whatever the evidence you have, and the stronger the evidence is, the more reason there is to believe that there is a God. How do you do that for atheism? Atheism says way back beyond the things science observes. Somehow we know there is no supernatural transcendent being that could intervene in the affairs of this world from time to time. He's not there, and we know it. How do you prove that? In one sense, it would almost require omniscience to know that claim is true. I found today many atheists are backing away from even making arguments for atheism. They simply try to pass it over and say, no, you're the one who has to make an argument. You don't even attempt to make any arguments for it. But the one argument that is often made is this one here, that evil in the world, and this is the key idea, that evil in the world 
is inconsistent or incompatible with the Christian God, a God, the God that Christianity says is there. In other words, these two statements, evil exists and God exists, are incompatible statements. And if two things really are incompatible, then, of course, one of them has to be false. And, of course, since we know this one's true, this one has to be false. And that's how the argument goes. Now, let, let's, let's flesh it out just a little bit more, and you'll see on the screen here, the, the atheist comes to the, to, the, to the theist, or the Christian theist particularly, and says, you know what? There are three things that I see you people believing, you folks believing. And you can believe them if you want to, but at the end of the day, they're incoherent, they're contradictory. What are those three premises, pro, uh, propositions? The first one is this, that God is good. Now, is it not true? We do, we do believe God is good. Is there anybody in this room who's a Christian who does not believe God is good? It's the most common adjective applied to God. He's good in terms of his mercy and his compassion and his grace. He's purely, completely good, is he not? He's also good in terms of his holiness and his justice. He is a good God. And, 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 and in fact, not just a little bit good, but he's purely good. That's, that's premise number one. The, the second uh, pro proposition is this. God is also all-powerful. The technical term is he is omnipotent. Okay, but that, that just means if, God, if, if it can be done, God can do it. He can do anything at all that can be done. God is all-powerful. None of us are that way. We all have some power, but we are very, very limited in our power. God is all-powerful. And the third one, of course, is evil exists. Now, why are these supposedly contradictory? Well, look at that first one, if God is good. I mean, the, the, the statement says God is good. If that is true, the atheist will come to us and say, does that not mean he would want to oppose evil? He would want to. What does it mean to be good? Does it not mean you are opposed to evil, even when you and I know people who are good? Don't we say they're good because they oppose evil? If we, if we talk, about, talk about someone and we talk about how good they are, and then we start asking questions and we find out, well, actually the person's pretty malicious. They're also dishonest. They're also unkind to children. And it goes on and on and on. Pretty soon, what do you mean good? The word good has lost its meaning, doesn't it? Good means you're opposed to evil. Well, the atheist says, well, if God is completely good, would he not really, really want to oppose evil? I say, okay, how about that second one? Well, if he's all-powerful, would he not be able to oppose evil? And you see where this is going? If he would want to, and he'd be able to, well, then how can that third proposition be true? How can there be any evil in the world, and not just little bits of it, but huge amounts of evil in the world? How can these three be true? And the atheist says, <clears throat> many atheists are, are, will say, you can believe any two of those, you simply can't believe all three. You can believe the first two if you want. God is good and God is all-powerful. You just have to reject the third, but how can you do that? Or you can believe God is good and evil exists. Why? Because he's not powerful enough to stop it. Or you can say he's all-powerful and evil exists. Why? Because he's an evil tyrant, but he's not good. But how do you put those three together? But you Christians believe all three, but they're incoherent. They contradict. That's the argument. Uh, I remember being involved in a, a different debate up at UBC, with a long-time atheist professor there, Dr. Dale Beierstein, a very fine man, actually, and a good professor, and uh, somewhat of a friend as well. Uh, but we, we had this uh, debate, simply atheism versus, theism versus atheism. And I spent 10 minutes on my opening remarks making a case for theism, and I spent the other 10 saying, Dale, you're going to have to give us some reason for thinking atheism is true. Give us some reason for thinking it's true. It makes a huge claim, need to know, have some reason. I went by, went through a number of different things that I thought atheists might try, showing how I thought they were ineffective, but it said, you give us your reason for thinking your truth claim is true. He went through his opening remarks and didn't do it. Then we went through the rebuttal, still came up with no arguments. And all the way through to the Q&A period, finally somebody stepped up for the Q&A. 
And he raised up his notes, and I still remember it was kind of a funny moment. He held his notes up and said, my question is for Dr. Byersey, and he said, I've been listening, I've been taking careful notes. I still haven't heard one reason for why atheism is true. And he said, can you give us anything? At that point, Dr. Byersey said, okay, okay, let me give you one. I'm not sure why he waited that long, but he said, I guess what he did? Evil in the world. And in fact, he pointed specifically to spina bifida babies. He said, because I don't want Paul to be able to, to pull out that free will argument that I think he probably has up his sleeve. And he can't use that for this one. And that was his argument, problem of evil in the world. I remember hearing a different debate, uh, Dr. Michael Roos, a very well-known uh, professor in, in, at the University of Guelph, but now he's in the United States. And, and, and rep, he's an agnostic, representing agnosticism in this debate with a Christian philosopher. And he was very gregarious and very clear and quite funny, and he was doing a really good job actually representing his position. He got to the end of the debate, uh, and suddenly his entire demeanor changed. His, all the humor left. And he began to talk about, say things like this. He said, even if there is the God that you are talking about, I want nothing to do with him because he's thoroughly rotten. And his lip began to quiver as he began to talk about, with, with anger, as he began to talk about a little girl who had gotten away from home. And he said it took her 11 hours to freeze to death, a local story. He says, I would not do that to one of my kids, and yet your so-called heavenly father allows this kind of thing to happen all the time. I want nothing to do with him. Now, notice that's technically not an argument for atheism. That's saying if there is a God there, I still want nothing to do with him. But why? Because he can't be this good God you keep talking about. Rabbi Harold Kushner is a man who wrote a book some of you may have heard of. It's called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Some of you may have seen that book. I read that a number of years back, and it's, it's a very well-written book, actually. And the rabbi, of course, being a man with great conviction about the Old Testament, but not believing in the New or in Jesus, had a very firm conviction in an omnipotent good God from the Old Testament as a, as a Jewish leader. And then he and his son had a young boy who was born with a premature aging disease. And they were told that he'll live to, to, to be about 12 years old. At that time, he'll die appearing to be an old man. And that is exactly what happened. And when they got done, the rabbi wrote this book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's actually quite a moving book. Tell us this story. But then he begins to ask questions. Why is this? How can this be? How can it be that God is good and this happens? How can it be that he's all-powerful and this happens? He looked at those same three propositions and said, one of those has to give. And, of course, can you imagine which one might have been the one to give for him? He said, I believe God is good, and I believe he grieves over our pain and our suffering, but the reason he grieves is because he would like to stop it, but he can't. He does not have the power to stop it. And so, in other words, he compromised that one pro pro proposition that says God is omnipotent. And my question for us this morning, is that what we need to do? Can the Christian somehow hold on to all those pro pro propositions? That's going to be our question because the, that is the atheist argument. Those propositions contradict. And the, and, and the question we need to ask is, do they or do they not? Can you see them? Can you prove that they contradict or can you not? That's the question we need to ask. Let me just move to a couple of responses that sometimes we as Christians give and I want to suggest that we need to be very careful with these because as we give them alone, they may not do on their own. We need to think more carefully about these. So the first one is this. Sometimes have we not said this to our friends around us? Well, look at I'll tell you why there's evil in the world and how, I can, how I'm, my explanation here. It is that God doesn't cause the evil. He merely permits it. Have we said that kind of thing? And now is that true? Well, that's my first question. There's two questions I need to ask on this. Is it true and how does this help? But let me ask the first question first. Is that actually technically true? 
that God does not cause evil. He merely permits it. Well, let me just read you. It seems in one, in one sense it is true, doesn't it? But let me read you what Second Samuel chapter 12 says. This is Nathan coming to the, to the prophet Nathan coming to the King David after his egregious sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. You know the story probably. Uh, and he says this, I am going to bring, I, God says, I'm going to bring calamity on you and your household. How would that look like if you were on the ground? That would look like evil and pain and suffering. And God says, I am doing that. I will bring that to you. Or how about this? Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. God speaking to the nation of Israel after they had turned away from God, after they had lusted after idols. And he said this, I am about to, about to bring a sword against you. I will do that. I will slay your people. I will lay dead bodies in front of your idols. In other words, the point is, I will demonstrate how powerless those idols are to save you when the real God steps in. But how would that look if you were on the ground? Would that not look like evil and pain and suffering? And God says, I'm the one doing that. Now, of course, technically, we're going to want to say something like this. Well, if God does it, by definition, it is good. But why? What makes it good? That's, that's the, that's the, that's the, 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 the question. The, but the second question is this. How does this explanation actually help? That God does not cause evil, he merely permits it. Let's think about this and think about what this would sound like to your friends when you share it with them. Suppose we stand by and we watch some of us. We do nothing as we see a child out there maybe freezing to death, drowning, being beaten mercilessly. When we could stop it, we stand there and we watch it. And somebody runs up to us and says, why aren't you guys stopping this? Well, what's with you guys? And you say, so one of us says, hey, look at we're not causing this beating. We're not causing this drowning. We're just permitting it. Would that get us off the hook? Would that, would, would they, wouldn't everybody else turn to us and say, oh, I guess you are great guys after all. We, we, we forgot that for a moment there. No, we'd be saying, no, why aren't you stopping that? Uh, the fact that you're not causing this, permitting it, doesn't help as much as we thought it might. Here's a second one that we need to be careful with, and that is this. That God will, second explanation, that God will eventually put a stop to all evil. Now, is that true? Yeah, I think it is true. In fact, I know it's true. If you read the book of Revelation, chapter 20 and 21, that's coming. There's going to be a day when there will be no more evil. But the question I need to ask is, is how does that help in this conversation, in this discussion? There again, what if I stood by and I did nothing as a child was being beaten mercilessly when I could stop it? And what if you come to me and say, why aren't you stopping this terrible thing? And suppose I say, wow, I hate evil so much, I'm going to stop this in a few minutes. Just give me a few minutes and I'm going to stop this. Are you not going to say, well, if you hate evil, why aren't you stopping it now? That's probably going to be the first things out of our mouth. And I would say, let's not be too surprised if our atheist or skeptic friends or our neighbors say, boy, I hope you've got something more than just that to say on this. And you know what? There is something more. Let's, let's move to, to what I've found to be a far better approach. And, and this, uh, this comes from a very well-known Christian philosopher. His name is Dr. Alvin Plantinga who used to be the president of the American Philosophical Association, a completely brilliant man who's written much on this topic and very, very helpful things he's written. He's had a great influence in the world of philosophy and the world of Christian philosophers as well, but not just Christian philosophers. And Dr. Alvin Plantinga said, you know, the most fundamental response for this argument is something different than what we've just seen. And to see that, let's put, those, let's put the argument back up on the screen again. Notice what the argument is again. Notice the three pro pro propositions there. God is good. God is all-powerful. And God is, uh, and evil exists. We've got those three propositions. Remember the atheist argument here? Remember the atheist claim? These three contradict. And Dr. Plantinga says, you know what? The, the most important thing we can say about that is that is simply false. 
you will never be able to show an outright contradiction between these three, these three propositions here. You simply won't. And, and, and notice this, making a claim that something is a contradiction is a very big claim to make. And look what we have, look at the statements there. What would it mean for that first one to contradict? Well, it says God is good. You know what would be an explicit contradiction with that? God is not good. Would that not explicitly contradict? God is good and God is not good. Or the second one, God is all-powerful and God is not all-powerful. Those two would contradict explicitly, wouldn't they? Or Chamberlain standing here speaking this morning, but Chamberlain is not standing here speaking this morning. Now we have an explicit contradiction. We don't have anything like that in these propositions, do we? We have these three statements brought together with some reasoning and some assumptions brought to bear to draw out some kind of a contradiction between them. And Alvin Plantinga says, you know what? You will never be able to show a contradiction between those three propositions for one simple reason. It's this. And that is, 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 is that it is always at least possible that there is a good God there, an all-powerful God, who has a good reason for allowing some suffering and evil to be in this world. It's at least possible that, he does, that there is a God there who has a good reason. And if he does, then he remains good and omnipotent even while evil and pain and suffering exist. In other words, everything hinges on God having a good reason. Remember this now. This is not an argument for theism that we're doing here. This is an argument for atheism. The argument is that there's a contradiction between those premises. And Alvin Plantig is simply saying, the atheist will never be able to succeed with that argument. He will never be able to show a contradiction between those three because it's at least possible that God has a good reason. To see the importance of a reason, think of it, think of it this way. Suppose I was walking down one of our streets, maybe even in town here, in, in Chilliwack here, on a nice afternoon, and I'm, I'm just going out for a stroll, and suddenly I hear, right beside one of the homes, I hear a child screaming blue murder inside that house, and I stop. And then I wait again, and sure enough, another bloody scream comes from inside that house, and I say, wow, something terrible is going on inside there, and I rush in there. I open that door, and I rush in to see if I can stop something terrible that's going on, and what do I find? I find two parents holding a child very firmly while a medical doctor is giving that child an injection. And that child's screaming away because that child doesn't like the needle. What am I going to say? Oops, sorry about that, and I'm, I'm going to back out of there. Why am I going to back out of there? Is that child not experiencing pain? Yeah, that child's experiencing pain. Uh, are those parents and doctor not causing the pain, merely permitting it? No, they're actually causing the pain, aren't they? Why do I walk out and say, okay, there's still good parents and a good medical doctor? Why? There's one reason. Because they had a good reason for what they did, a good morally sufficient reason, which removes blame from their action and from my attitude toward it. In other words, if I'd walked in there and I didn't see that, but I saw three or four young guys and they were holding down a little child and poking that child with needles, everything would be different, wouldn't it? The same kind of pain, they're causing it just the same, but, they, but that, that suddenly that would be considered a horrible abuse and a horrible torture, and I would not run out and say, oops, we'd be calling the police and the social services or something to take care of that, because something terribly bad would have happened. The difference is that one person had a reason, and the other person did, did not. And now notice what that does to the argument here. Let's put the argument back up there if we can, and because no, notice now we have no longer three propositions, we have four, and they're no longer contradictory. Notice what they say now. God is good, God is all-powerful, and notice the next two. Evil exists, and God has a good reason for allowing some evil and suffering. As long as that fourth proposition is there, notice what it does. It simply draws out the consistency of the first three. Why is there evil in the world? Because this good, omnipotent God has a good reason. And so it all comes down to this one question. Does 
God have a good reason? That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Now, of course, if you're a Christian and you're reading the Bible, I think there's a pretty simple answer to that question. Yeah, God acts with reasons. He acts with purposes. You don't find God going off willy-nilly doing things without purposes. He has big, long purposes and maybe some smaller ones as well. But, you know, we're not talking you know, about here now about, about interacting with people who already believe the Bible. What, what do we say when we're talking with people who don't believe the Bible? They don't have the same trust and confidence in the Bible. The question for that person is this. Could, could God have a good reason or purpose for allowing evil and suffering in the world? In other words, could it be, we say to our atheist or skeptic friend, could it be, just possibly, is it possible that there's a God, God there who's good, who's omnipotent, who also has a good reason for allowing some evil and suffering in the world? And you know what the answer to that question is? Yeah, of course he could. I mean, who could ever say or prove that he does not? It would require omniscience to know that there's no God up there who'd ha- who had no good reason for allowing some evil in the world. So notice how Alvin Plantinga puts this in a very succinct way. He says this, It's always at least possible that God has a good reason for allowing evil. And then he adds this, And from the fact that you and I may not know what that reason is, because maybe we don't, he says it does not follow that there is no good reason. And Alvin Plantick is right. If it's even possible that God has a good reason, then no contradiction can be shown between those three propositions. And remember, that's what the atheist is attempting to do, is to show that these three propositions contradict. Now, of course, at this point, the question arises, well, what kinds of reasons could there be? And if I can have you just move through a few of those slides again, come to the free will defense if you wouldn't mind. This is where many people will ask, what reasons can you suggest? Can you suggest any? And I would just say to us right off the bat, yeah, we can probably suggest, in fact, there's been so many articles and books written on this exact topic, because most, most people in the business understand this is the one big argument that atheists will bring against the existence of God. So much has been written on all sides of this, and people have gone on with many suggested reasons that God might have. Let me mention a couple this morning that I think that I really think have merit for us to think about. And I would say we need to be very careful and use these only if it's necessary, because it could well be that we might share our best reasons with our friends, and our friends say, those don't cut it for me. And, and maybe we've sent the message that if that's the re- best reasons we can come up with, maybe there aren't any good reasons. We don't even really technically need these reasons. These are sometimes called theodicies, it's a, or a technical term. But let me give you a couple that I think are worth thinking about, and I think that f- uh, fit biblical data very well as, uh, also. And the one comes from C.S. Lewis, and also from Alvin Plenting as well, but C.S. Lewis does this in a beautiful way. It simply says, sometimes called the human free will response. It simply says this, look, at when God created human beings, he created us as persons, not robots. In other words, he created us with free will, not as robots. And the, and the question is, well, why? Well, the answer is because robots really are hardly worth creating. Robots don't experience love, relationships, joy, goodness. They don't experience any of that. They don't, their actions have no moral value. Even, even, even the good ones. In other words, if there was a robot that opened, suddenly the door opened and a robot came on down here and a nice plate of brownies for us all today and we say, wow, that is good. They say, let's take a break and have those brownies. Would any of us say, pat that robot on the shoulder and say, that's a good robot. I want to make sure I get that one. You'd be saying, no, who's operating the robot? Somebody with intention and free will and purpose is operating the robot. That's the person to thank. Well, why would God not create a world of robots, as Lewis said? Because they're hardly worth creating. It's free will that makes all these things possible. And what God desired for us was to be voluntarily, freely united to him and to each other and to experience love and joy and relationships and and all these things. So to make that possible, he gave us free will. 
But you know what? Here's the powerful implication that follows from that. It's the kicker, really. Because now we have to admit that if a thing is really free, and this is how C.S. Lewis puts it, the thing is really free to do good, what's it also free to do? Bad. If you're free to do good, you're free to do bad. Of course, God knew that would happen, says Lewis. He obviously thought it was worth the risk because there simply is no point in creating robots. But the point of it is that some of the evil in the world, what sometimes we call man's inhumanity to man, moral evil, is a result of free people using their free will to commit evil actions. And, and that's, that's one. Now, we should, we should know it right off the bat. There are some places we should not use this free will defense. And, and the debater I was talking about earlier, Dr. Dale Byerson, he picked up on this very quickly when he used the example of spina bifida babies. And that's a good example of a place we should not use them. Use this. Uh, spina bifida babies, mudslides that might cover an entire village, tidal waves or floods that kill thousands, a drought, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, these, these are what we would call natural evil, not the result of human activity. So using the free will defense really doesn't get us very far with these. For these ones, we need to turn to a different kind of reason that many people have put forward. It's sometimes called the natural laws defense. It simply says this. When God created the world, he created it to run according to natural laws. In other words, consistency. So the things will operate in a consistent, predictable fashion because we need that to be able to live. But what that means is then that the same fire which heats your home and provides that cozy fireside for your camping trip can wipe out an entire family if the wrong apartment building catches on fire. And that's tragic. But we probably still admit that it's a still a good idea to operate the world on consistent natural laws. In fact, it's very likely we couldn't even survive if the world did not function according to consistent natural laws. There'd be no order, there'd be no predictions, there'd be no planning. Life would probably not be possible. Now, some people have asked me, and maybe you've wondered about this as well, maybe it's been asked to you as well, couldn't God at times intervene? Couldn't he miraculously prevent certain cases of evil? And I, and I know of one medical doctor who has said she simply can, will never be able to become a Christian because she herself was involved in a tragic car accident. She was the one driving her vehicle, and a young 16-year-old girl cut out in front of her. She hit the car, killed the young girl, she said, God, if there's a God there, he could have stopped that. I simply, I can't believe in a God who would let that kind of thing happen and cause that grief and that tragedy. And what, what's the answer? Could God have stopped that? Yeah. Does he sometimes intervene? Yeah. When he does, what do we call it? We call it a miracle, don't we? And there are some miracles that happen in the world. We don't know them all, none of us, but there are some. And they're almost, the Bible paints them as almost being normal for whenever God wants to step in and do something miraculously. But the question is, what are we asking God to do here? C.S. Lewis addresses this in his wonderful book called The Problem of Pain, a book I highly recommend if anybody wants to read it. In fact, it's been called by some other very good thinkers the best book ever written on the problem of evil. And that's a very huge claim to make for any book, but it, it is, it's a wonderful book. Uh, and C.S. Lewis asked the question, yes, could God intervene miraculously? Yes. Do we really want him to do that? Do we want him to do it all the time? Do we really know what we're asking? Lewis says this, how far do we want God to go? Do we want God to take that car and turn that car into, into a soft piece of metal when it's just about to hit somebody else? Do we want God to take that baseball bat that somebody picks up and ready to strike somebody else with it and turn that baseball bat into a, into a twig? Do we want him to do that? Do we want God to take those harsh words that we're about to say and change those words into kind words? How about going right back into the, into the function of our brain and just changing a harsh thought into a kind thought? How about doing that? Then we wouldn't have to deal with it at all. I mean, where do we want God to stop? 
The thing is, if God did all those things, well, the effect of our free choices would be nullified. We'd be back to a world that didn't operate with any regularity or consistency. We probably couldn't even live that way. In other words, God knows how, mu how many interventions we can handle and still carry on. I think it's much wiser, and Lewis argues for this as well, to leave that in the hands of God. God does intervene sometime. He doesn't intervene many, many times. He allows consequences of our decisions often to play out. And I would simply stress, these are merely our best attempts to suggest what God's reasons may be. I think we should use these carefully and only if they help. You know, the Bible has some things to say about this as well, and there's, there's many things we could point to, but a passage that always comes to my mind is coming from the book of James, where he has a perspective on evil and the tough things that come our way, and it is a really surprising one, especially when we take it seriously. It's in book, the book of James chapter 1, verses 2 to 12, really 2 through 4, and then over to verse 12. But it's a verse where, where James says this, and some of you will know it. Consider it pure what? Joy. Can you think about that word for a moment? Consider it pure joy when various trials come your way. Why? Because the testing of your faith, notice what he calls these trials now. He calls them tests of our faith. Testing of your faith will produce in you perseverance. That will then lead to maturity, which will ultimately lead to the receiving the crown of life. And that's how James puts it. C.S. Lewis weighs in on this as well in his, in his book, The Problem of Pain. And he, and he talks about this in ways that I had never thought of about it before. He simply says, there are times when our difficult experiences are the expressions of the love of God to the people he loves, for, he loves and cares for deeply. Expressions of his love. In other words, they're part of his plan for building and shaping us into the kind of people he has in mind for us to be. And Lewis says, when Jesus said, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, that verse is in there. We don't know what to do with that verse sometime, do we? Lewis said, he meant that. He wasn't talking through his hat. He was, he, and he will take steps in your life and my life to move us in that direction. And to help us understand that, Lewis has a couple of powerful illustrations here. One of them is a painter. He says, think about a painter with his little five-minute sketch. He won't put a lot of effort into that, will he? Not a lot of concern into that five-minute sketch. But what about the main work of his lifetime? When it comes to that, he will take his time. He will erase the parts that are not right. He will smudge out. He'll do it over. And he'll keep on doing that until that painting is the way he wants it. Lewis says, or like a builder. A builder will not spend much time and concern on that little shack for the backyard. But on the main project, the mansion of his life, the big project of his life, what will he do? He'll knock out the walls. He'll repair scuffs. He'll repaint until that building is just the way he wants it to be. Lewis says, that's what God is doing with us. And he says, you may wish that God would leave you alone, treat you like that shack or that sketch. Wouldn't that sometimes make life a lot easier? But then Lewis says, notice what you're asking for. Now you're asking for a God who loves you less. And the big problem with that is, if you're following the God of the Bible, you are not following a God who loves you less. You're following a God about whom Paul says in Romans chapter 8, his love for us is infinite, it knows no limits, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Lewis says, you asked for a God to love you, you sure got one. And then he adds, and he is paying you the intolerable compliment of demonstrating his love to you by never leaving you alone. Fortunately for us, he's not only a powerful, sovereign creator of the universe, he's also a loving, caring, heavenly father. Everything he does is driven by his love for you and for me. Thank you very much. God bless you folks. Let, let's bow in a moment in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much.
that that is exactly what you are. You are Heavenly Father. You are, we've been speaking of you in these terms of being an omnipotent God. You are, you are that and you're more. You're omniscient. You're omnipresent. You're everywhere. You're in control of this entire universe. You're sovereign. You're powerful. But you are also a loving Heavenly Father. And you care for us all deeply. I thank you for an opportunity we have to think about this and contemplate this and think about how this relates to our faith and to our walk with you. I pray that you'll give us opportunities to serve you and serve others, and particularly those who don't know you, well, as we, as we contemplate these matters further. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.